Nissa. Hi, Dom. Happy holidays. Happy Yuletide season. Is it feeling festive over there? Yeah, she's asking because Vanessa decided to leave New York just as it was shutting down again, <laughs> as she does. Yeah, I guess so. So so we were debating what we should do for Christmas. Uh-huh. And then we thought, what does everybody and- love? What gives a, t- a glow of seasonal <laughs> joy to every person, man and child, woman? And non-binary person. And indeed concluded that the the one thing that unites the world is dead Jews. The love for dead there Jews. You go. Which is the title of Dara Horn's book, People Love Dead Jews. Which is a great title. The actual conversation was more along the lines of, hey, Adam. Yes, Vanessa? We need to do something for Christmas, right? Yeah. How about we do the dead <laughs> Jews episode? Why? Well, because isn't Christmas ultimately really about the greatest Jew that had ever died? Did I say that? Was that my joke? Yep. Wow. Well, if it was funny, I'd take credit for it. <laughs> if it wasn't, I'd, I don't remember. If it was, I don't recall. If it was offensive to someone, <laughs> exactly. then that my, I'm just libeling you. What I really want to know is who is offended? Who would be offended by this? Uh, well, if you're not, then... So, well, no, you're a bad... You're a bad... Person? I, I mean, is it, off- is it offensive to Jews? Is it offensive to Christians? I don't know. Right, right. Could be offensive to Muslims, too. They also have some some important role for Jesus in their canon. We're equal opportunity offenders. <laughs> Everyone can choose to be offended by us. I, I think I think Hindus would take no offense to any of these. Maybe maybe pagans, oh, though, yeah. would. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's really not about Jesus, is it? I actually did. I went to a little solstice celebration this weekend. It was fun. Full moon. It was, it was neato. Wow, going full pagan. Nice. We have strayed somewhat. Yeah, we're getting sidetracked from Dara Horn and her her excellent book and podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews. Yes. So Dara Horn is a novelist and a literary scholar, but her recent book and podcast are about her research regarding the unique place that Jews have in the imaginations of non-Jews. She has looked at this question through various perspectives, looking at ways that people have memorialized the the death of, of Jews, the systemic death of Jews in places where anti-Semitism was rampant, and the way that, that Jews are portrayed in, in popular media. And the conclusions that she's reached are, as the title suggests, um, a touch on the macabre side. To oversimplify, her argument is that the collective memory of of the West and actually beyond the West has only accepted Jews insofar as they have essentially shed off their distinct Jewish identity, this this, this ineffable Jewiness of theirs, and have effectively become just a symbol for a universally oppressed minority, not a specific group with its own cultural, religious, ethnic identity. So in her book, she goes through a myriad of examples of how and why this plays out this way. And what it serves for the for the non-Jewish society's imagination. Like it play, it, she, she brings up this point again, again and again, like a, the violent death of Jewish people ha- plays a, a role in, in the non-Jewish imaginary that is very vivid. And she talks about that and why it matters to non-Jewish society. Yes. We also talk about contemporary uh, manifestations of anti-Semitism, I think, right? We talk about the U.S.? Yes, 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 we definitely do. We talk about the Tree of Life shooting and and the way that the media 
demands coverage of those types of events. The ways that they do has made Dara incredibly uncomfortable over the years. And we talk about her grappling with, you know, she herself as a novelist and a journalist re- responding to these events, her discomfort with, with being put into these narratives and her attempt to kind of break free of them. That fits nicely with the, with the worthy, unworthy victims that we've just discussed with Matt Taibbi. That's true. But possibly my favorite thing about the book and, and perhaps the conversation we had with Dara, because she comes from literature, she, she thinks in terms of story making. And that reaches sort of an apotheosis for me when she's specifically writing about the difference in the way that Jews construct narratives and the way that the, the, the Christian European world has done so and how those two diverged in a profound way. Mm-hmm. And then what that means to the way that different societies understand themselves, their actions and their responsibilities, not to mention the atrocities that they've committed. We, we do not go into the topic of Israel, I believe, but um, no. that's for another time. Right. And this conversation also posed two interesting problems for me, or at least challenges, I should say. At first, I, I, I think that the, the problem of identity struggling when in a majoritarian group is, is a universal problem. And you read the writings of, uh, say, Franz Fanon about the, the difficulty of black people trying to find their place in white majoritarian Western societies wanting to preserve their own identity and the fact that they will never really be accepted for what they are in the majority group, or at least the irking suspicion that that's the case. And, and the second problem is that I've grown up very wary of the more restrictive sides of religion and specifically Judaism every once in a while mention growing up in Jerusalem, you can't help but see how hyper-religiosity can create a lot of constraints on uh, liberal principles and freedoms that I value and see to be part of the basic guarantees of a modern society. Liberal principles that, as we've discussed with Tom Holland, emerge from a very particular time in history in a very cultural context and maybe are totally incongruent with Jewish history. But at some point, you need to choose how to balance your own you know, moral portfolio between, between the, the more restrictive molding qualities of a small tribal community and, and some, potentially something else, something that is by, by result, if not by design, more humanist and universal. So that's a, a, a challenge. And when we're talking about the problem of Jews and assimilation throughout Europe, I think that's looming there. So that's something that I was trying to broach with Dara. Unfortunately, time was, was short, so I only got to start scraping this conversation. But I think we I think we got somewhere. But you all feel free to tell me what you think. And I do highly recommend uh, the podcast, uh, Adventures with Dead Jews. Adam raved about the book, but I do think the podcast is worth mentioning too because you get some little extra stories and they do a really good job of put, getting kind of the, the the magic of audio in there and like the magic of audio indeed and you know podcast people like podcasts so if you're listening to this I assume you like podcasts so check it out oh speaking of the magic of audio I just realized I forgot to insert the the dramatic piano sting 
when we were talking about Chomsky in our previous uh, episode. Yes. That's dereliction of duty. The magic of audio is also the rating and, and giving us the good stars so that other people can find the magic that we share. Oh, right, yes. Adam? Please give us five star rating on Apple Podcasts because... Christmas presents for Adam and myself. Yes, because that really does make a profound difference in our lives. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're craving some more despair-driven, anti-partisan, uncertain, ambivalent content, check out our inscrutable uh, newsletter, which is part of our uncertain substack at uncertain.substack.com. All you need to do is go into your setting and just add inscrutable. In anticipation of our Dead Jews episode, I posted last week uh, a little essay about Spinoza, for instance, if you're interested. It's kind of my manifesto in defense of uh, uh, cognitive dissonance. Adam's been doing some writing. He's been, I've been very proud of him for actually getting the right, some writing done. And we should also be starting to get some writings from guest uh, contributors as well. Crowd favorite and three-time guest Misha should be writing a piece for Christmas, I believe. Maybe I'll even write something in the new year. Let's see. Let's see. (laughs) We can hold hope. (laughs) New Year's resolution. Let's see if I... If I actually make it. Um, and yeah, and leave us leave us comments, write to us on Uncertain Pod on the social media if you want to chat and uh, share us with your friends and enemies. So with that. Share a horn. Okay, I think we're good to go. Uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a delight Woo! to be here in the luminous ether. So, well, well, we've gotten used to that existence. Yeah. So let's get straight into it. Your book, People Love Dead Jews brings in a lot of, of ideas of the role that, that Jews play in the, the imagination of the nations. And a lot of it is Jewish history being what it is, morbid. But I want to start with a theme that um, I found riveting, maybe because we, we dealt with it previously on the podcast, and that's the challenge of um, memorializing uh, a tragedy. And specifically, you write about how the way that the stories of Jewish tragedy have been retold throughout the centuries has often had more to do with complementing the vanities of the memorializers, the people who build the museums and write the histories, than actually recording history. I think that it's less about sort of the memorializers, although that's part of it. It's more that like, the, it, the book is really about the rule, the role that Jews play in this sort of like imagination of a larger non-Jewish societies. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's really what it's about. People tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And, you know, there's a role that that is playing. And what I mean by that is there's this sort of uh, this self-flattering thing that's being done where tra- I wouldn't even call them tragedies because that impl- I mean, I'm a literary scholar and tragedy is like something you bring on yourself, which is <laughs> not what's happening mm-hmm. here. And that's sort of what I'm right, right, against. Right. Um, Which is actually a line in the book that as somebody who's not a, a literary scholar, I was like, oh, that's a great observation. I completely betrayed that right now in my description. <laughs> atrocities. Yes, exactly. Atrocity, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I mean, disasters. Yeah. So um, it's the role that these that these you know disasters are playing and where it is. And when I say a story that makes people feel better about themselves, that like can take a lot of different forms. And I'm not sure what direction you want to go in, with this. But um, what I was sort of interested in was how it required in many cases and in the cases really that I'm exploring in the book an erasure of like actual living Jews and an erasure of like expressions of Jewish identity among living Jews. 
Um, so that's why in the opening chapter of the book, I have this example from this uh, Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, um, you know, which is this like, you know, this is the museum where, you know, Anne Frank and her family and, you know, these uh, other people were hiding from the Nazis. And then, you know, this, this, this building is now this like blockbuster museum that, you know, is like 2 million visitors a year. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, there's this kind of amazing news story about this, about like the things that this museum was doing with this memory, which like really like explicitly required an erasure of Jewish identity of like currently living Jews. And that was sort of really striking to me. So that's where I sort of started this, the book in that direction. But was it a receptionist who was not allowed to wear a yarmulke? Right? Yes, right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So there was right somebody who worked at the museum who was um, a young Jewish employee who was like the museum would not let him wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. And then. Whoa. Yeah. And then like they then I mean, it's like, you know, it's like it's it's a comedy, right? Because then he appeals his decision to the board of the museum and the board of the museum then deliberates for four months and then relents wow. and lets him wear his yarmulke to work. I mean, as I put it in the book, like four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. Right? <laughs> and then it's like the same, something really similar had happened. Um, so again, this was something that happened in 2018. Um, and then the year before in 2017, there was something weird that happened at this same museum that visitors had noticed with the audio guides. Cause like, you know, they have, you know, it's like when they big international museums, they have like, I don't know, 15 languages and they all have like, you know, there's, you go to the audio guide display and it says like English and there's a little British flag and it says Francais, and there's a little French flag. And it's like, you know, all these flags. And then you get to Hebrew, Hebrew, no flag. Hmm. And it's like, you know, I mean, you know, as I put it in the, I'm like, you know, these might be like PR mishaps, but like, they're not really mistakes. Right. They're decisions. They're choices. They're, yes. And they're decisions that are sort of basically, you know, because they're like, oh, these things get in the way of like our museum's message of like, you know, teaching about like the Jews humanity. Hmm. And it's like, but like that requires you to like erase like the like identity of living Jews. Right. That's like seems to be what you're doing here. It's like very explicit. And so, um, you know, so and that's like just like a very glaring example of this. But like it's sort of. You know, throughout the book, I sort of go through these other examples where that always that erasure seems to be a requirement um, for, you know, um, for Jews to, uh, you know, be part of these public conversations. And that that's sort of what I'm diving into in the book. So I think the way I was coming into this was sort of assuming with many of the cases that you bring up, whether it's the the poet from the Soviet Union or the city of Khormin, that the erasure was part of the, the point. It was a feature, not a bug to begin with. Nobody loves building monuments to crimes that they've committed. And as such, I find it almost more remarkable that many of these atrocities did get memorialized at all. What's so striking about this story is that we have a minority group that, that has been oppressed and, and eradicated by a majoritarian group. Not a new story. But then that minority group has been elevated to be some kind of universal symbol that the, the, the majoritarian oppressor ends up identifying with. What's up with that? Yes. Well, so, okay, so there's a few things to unpack here, um, and not all of which I make totally explicit in the book. Um, one is like sort of, it, well, certainly in the Anne Frank example, I do think that there's like this um, sort of unspoken level of, of Christian belief that's animating a lot of this that like, you know, is sort of like a vestigial kind of Christian belief where it's like, you know, these like 
murdered Jews are supposed to like offer you some kind of absolution from your sins or something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So like when I say that the Jews are playing this role in a non-Jewish imagination, like that's what I'm talking about. Right. It's that like, right. It's like that's, you know, and that's why I give that example of like, you know, it's like, Oh, what's the most famous line from Anne Frank's diaries, this thing where she's like, Oh, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart. You know, that's the line that they like plaster on the wall of the museum. It's like on the book jacket. It's the thing that's like on your test when like you have this like to read in school. Like, you know, and that's like the reason that line is like so celebrated is because like, you know, as I put it in the book, it's like we feel it inspires us, by which we mean it flatters us. Right. Because it makes, you know, it makes people feel forgiven for, you know, lapses in Western civilization that lead to piles of murdered girls. And, you know, if a murdered girl said this, then right. it must be true. But like the reality is like so much simpler. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, Anne Frank wrote this line about people being good at heart like three weeks before she met people who weren't. Mm. Like three weeks after she writes this line, she gets arrested and deported to Auschwitz. I'm like, yeah, she met people there who weren't good at heart, right? And like that's sort of like you know, to me is like it requires you to erase all of that, right? And so that's like you also like you know, you get rid of that, and then you get to have this like inspiring story about humanity, right? And so there, when I say it's playing a role, that's what I mean. So 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 is there so, kind I'm, of some contortions that need to be done in order to make these types of narratives come come through? Yeah, I mean, and and like I said, erasures that need to, that need to happen. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, and then, I mean, there's a lot of them. So, and, and this also happens, you know, in a lot of situations that have nothing to do with the Holocaust. So like, um, and, and it's the role that, the, that Jews are playing in this non-Jewish imagination. Like you said, like the erasure is already there. Well, okay. But then there's a reason people are bringing this back. Right. I mean, so I have a chapter. Yeah. So I have a chapter in the, um, in this, in the book about, um, this city in China called Harbin. So I don't know if you want to go there. That's like, you know, take some time to explain what this is. Well, take all the time you need. I, I should mention, though, that Vanessa comes from the the field of, of architecture journalism, and we've had a conversation with um, an, an architecture critic about the difficulty of of striking the right balance with monuments. So we we have a baked in interest in this area. Okay. Well, so you know this this is a city. Uh, Harbin is a city in um, in northeastern China. It's like north of North Korea. It's like south of Siberia. Um, this is a, so it's, it's in this part of uh, China that's traditionally called Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Um, this city was basically built by Jews. And what I mean by that is like in the like late 19th, early 20th century, the Russians like had a, made a, an agreement with the, with the Chinese government to like build part of the Trans-Siberian Railroad through this part of Manchuria. They were going to build like this China, they were building like a, basically a railroad going deeper into China. They needed an administrative center for this railroad. So basically they needed a town. Um, they needed experienced Russian speaking entrepreneurs to build this town for them. They're like, the problem is like, who the heck wants to move to Manchuria? And then they're like, hello, Jews. Would you like Mm. to, you know, like live without anti-Semitic restrictions and, but not like have to be a bottom feeder in a New York city sweatshop. Like here's an option. You can move to Manchuria and 20,000 Jews moved to the Manchuria and basically, and built this city and like built all the infrastructure of the city. And then what happened is like in the 20th century, you have like successive regimes that like make life more and more difficult for them until the last Jewish family is evacuated by um, the Israeli government in 1962. Um, and then there's, you know, today there is like one Jew who lives in Harbin. Um, and, but what's amazing- Do they work at the museum? Um, he he is actually employed by the government to restore these Jewish heritage sites. Okay. Um, and, you know, what's, I mean, and, and as I put it in, as I put it in the book, like Jewish heritage sites is like, this is like a broader thing that is goes on around the world in like many countries that no longer have any Jews in them and used to. And, you know, this, as I put it in the book, like, you know, this, this phrase Jewish heritage sites is like this brilliant piece of marketing, right? Because it sounds so much better than like 
property seized from dead or expelled Jews, right? Like who wants mm. to go to that? So what's amazing about Harbin is that, so there you know, were basically no Jews in the city. Um, there's one guy there now. What happened was about, I think, I think now it's about 15 years ago, the government in this province of China decided to invest $30 million in restoring these Jewish heritage sites. And what's amazing about this to me, and is like, you look at the documentation of this, and they say the quiet part out loud. And what I mean by that is they literally had a conference, and the title of the conference was International Forum on Economic Cooperation Between Harbin and the World's Jews. And the mayor of Harbin gives a speech where he talks about how, um, you know, we love the Jews so much, like all these wonderful, famous Jews like J.P. Morgan and Nelson Rockefeller, who, in case you were wondering, neither of those people were Jewish. But then he makes it really clear because he's like, you know, the pockets of the, you know, the money of the world is in the pockets of the Jews. And this demonstrates the wisdom of the Jews. And if we restore these wonderful Jewish heritage sites, Jews will come and give us their money. And I think that I remember made me laugh out loud while reading your book. I think it was on the train or something. People were looking at me strange. Um, was that there's a thriving industry, apparently, of business books based on Talmudic wisdom, like the 10 things that the Jewish Bible teaches you about being successful in business. Yeah, it's like there's apparently like this whole genre in Chinese publishing, which is like, you know, you know, Talmud is the guide to making money. All I can say is like, I'm studying the Talmud. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Yeah. <laughs> so this was their, their economic development plan for the city was let's create heritage sites that bring Jewish tourists and investors to catalyze economic growth in our city. That was the thinking. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it really doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to figure out, like, this is really not, like, a great plan, right? <laughs> but, like, you know, what's amazing is, like, you know, this is, like, driven by this, like, you know, anti-Semitic belief, right? That's what it is. And, you know, they basically, you know, fell in totally to this anti-Semitic belief and are, like, enacting it in these sites. I mean, it's sort of, like, and, you know, you see this in a lot of parts of the world. Um, you know, there are a lot of places like this. And so, I mean, what's amazing is like, you know, I mean, these are like, you know, in a lot of places, the same, you know, regimes that drove the Jews out to begin with. Like, this is not in the book, but, um, you know, an example of this is in Egypt. Um, I have some stuff in the book about the Egyptian Jewish community. But like, you know, I mean, the, you know, the Egyptian government basically drove out. The, they had a huge Jewish community that was had been there for thousands of years, predated Islam. Um, they you know, drove out the Jews from Egypt in the 1950s and 60s. Now there are really no Jews. I mean, I think there's like 10 Jews left in Egypt who are like, you know, elderly people who like have, haven't been able to leave. And they now have the you know, same thing. Egyptian Jew, the Egyptian government has invested all this money in restoring these synagogues in Alexandria and in Cairo. In their case, it's like for an even a different cynical reason, which is they want to get, um, Funding from UNESCO, right? By like showing like how wonderful we are and how we're so open-minded and like look how diverse Egypt is. But like they they drove out the Jews and seized all their assets. And now they're like, look at this wonderful Jewish heritage we have in Egypt. So like, I mean, you know. So in that case, in the Egypt case, it's like let's the Jews become a symbol of how multicultural they are. I mean, it's like it's holding yeah. a different position for them in their narrative of yeah. So like what I mean, they look, are as a culture. That example I haven't researched myself, so like you know, I mm. don't, yeah, but so I you know that's I mean that's just publicly available information. Like I haven't you know that's not like my special insight. 
But like, yeah, I mean, there's sort of, there's these roles that, that be, you know, as I say, like, you know, people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves, right? And, you know, what's, you know, what's amazing though, is in some of these cases, like, you know, at least in like the Holocaust examples, like people hopefully like have some idea of what happened in the Holocaust, like it's not a secret. Whereas like you go to Harbin and like you go to their Jewish museum, like there's nothing in this museum that tells you why this wonderful community doesn't exist here anymore. It doesn't tell you. Right. And the same thing in Egypt, like, you know, there are people in Egypt today who are like, you know, under the age of 70, like, they're like, oh yeah, everything was wonderful with the Jews. And then, you know, like they just like decided they didn't feel like living here anymore. <laughs> like they really, people really believe that. So, I mean, that's like, you know, even more insidious because I mean, at least the Holocaust stuff, like hopefully people know about the Holocaust, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, it's just sort of bottomless, like how many examples of this there are. And so, I mean, that's what I'm exploring in the book in a lot of different ways and in the United States too. I mean, in different ways. Yeah. Again, and, and we will get to the United States, but what's so remarkable and we're still repeating myself, isn't the, the, original atrocity it, it it isn't the erasure that followed but it's the fact that at some point the er- erasing atrocity committing cultures say well maybe there's a benefit and advantage to actually retelling this story and obviously it's all the more entertaining when it's done in that utterly kitschy tacky way as they did in harbin where they displayed the quote-unquote authentic seder plates of the jewish community and and showed uh a plate plastic plate that was i think made in colombia or something oh it was even worse than that they had like plaster life-size plaster people kind of like a george seagal kind of thing like life-size <laughs> plaster people like pose like with furniture like there's like a life-size plaster man like sitting at like a ceo type desk behind like a typewriter and there's a caption that says you know real jewish businessman in Harvard. wow it's like it's yeah. just like, I mean, it's like cigar store indian right i mean that's wow. what it is, right right and it's still just so remarkable that it happened. Come on. I mean, I mean, I, I still I'm struggling to figure out what to make of it. Well, I mean, I think that what you're looking at is like, you know, the power of a conspiracy theory. And like, the, as I said, like the role people are playing in the world's imagination that has like, you know, that requires the erasure of living Jews, first of all. And second of all, you know, requires a total lack of curiosity about like anything about like what Judaism or, or Jewish culture actually is. Um, requires a total erasure of like, you know, even, you know, what you um you know even sometimes even of the the atrocities that happened um but then also you know it, it's something like it's self-flattering right it's also self-flattering because it's like you know oh look these you know like these dead jews are teaching us some powerful lesson about humanity mm. right or it's like you know there's you know there's this like universalizing piece of it right which is the it requires the erasure of jews and so and i think that's also part of like you know part of what's going on too is you know in this to take us to the United States is this idea, it's this, um, it's a lip service to diversity that makes people feel better about themselves. And what I mean by that is, I think that there is um, something that in, in, the United, in the United States, we're often, at least like in the time when I was growing up, and I still see it happening even with my children, like the way people are taught to like, you know, to not be bigoted is by giving people this idea that like, oh, you know, see this other group, they're just like you and me. Right. That's like the message. It's like, you know, oh, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be prejudiced against Jews because Jews are just like you and me. You know, Jews are just like us. And then the and then that this is sort of enacted. You see this like in like Holocaust museums here, too, um, where like um, this is not in the book, but it's in my podcast Adventures with Dead Jews in the opening episode. I talk about the children's exhibit at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Right. Which is like, you know, you're it's called like Daniel's story. And you're like walking through this kid's house. And it's like, you know, this like mock-up of this house in 
Frankfurt and it's like, you know, this German speaking kid and he's got like his soccer trophies and like, you know, his dad's war medals and like, you know, his after school snacks or whatever, you know, and then the next room you go to the ghetto or whatever. But like the idea is like kind of shocking is that like, you know, notice they've chosen like a child who's like not particularly religious, speaks a a non-Jewish language right? Who's, who's just like us. Well, meanwhile, you know, 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. Like that was the culture was actually destroyed in the Holocaust was like this like broad, Yiddish, I mean, there are still Jewish communities that speak Yiddish, but like this broad Yiddish speaking culture that included, like they had this wide diversity of like religious, secular, many different political parties, many different you know aspects of the culture that it was like that like use of language was killed right? That whole, like, Yiddish-speaking culture was actually destroyed, but, like, that we don't actually care about. What we're trying to prove is that the person was just like us, right? And that's Mm -hmm. some part of that erasure that's happening, and I think it does come from this idea that, like, oh, the only way you can empathize with someone is that they're just like you and me, and, like, you know, and, like, oh, look, they're just like everybody else. The problem with that in particular when it comes to Jewish culture is that, like, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everybody else, Right. Like that was sort of like, you know, one of the purposes of Judaism was to not be like everybody else. Right. It's like, you know, Jews were like worshiping a bossy, unsexy, invisible God, like before that was cool. Like, you know, what I mean? it was sort of like, you know, there was like never an attempt to be like everybody else. And that's the piece that's like being that's that's the real erasure. And so I forget where how we started with this. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, do you think that it's necessary? They're necessarily exclusive. Like, do you in can is it possible to have a humanizing, empathizing experience in a museum that memorializes a Jewish atrocity, atrocity that befell Jewish people, and at the same time p- a- accurately convey Jewish culture and a, and a Jewish and a Jewish experience or storytelling of that atrocity? Like, do they have to be mutually exclusive? Presumably in a way that speaks to the, a, a, a non-Yiddish speaker, right? Or somebody that is completely removed from Jewish experience. Right, right. Because there is always going to be an act of translation no matter what. Well, I mean, but I think that there's that, I mean, you need to actually care and be curious. You can't mm-hmm. be like learning about this because you just want it to be like a nice lesson about humanity. Like, I think when people go to like the Museum of African-American Culture in D.C., they're not like erasing, they're not like, oh, black people are just like white people. And it's like, you know, their, their culture is the same. And it's just like, you know, it's so wrong that we were, you know, people treated them poorly because like, no, it's like to celebrate like the development of, of African-American culture. Right. I mean, it's like, why would you not do that? Right. Like, mm. and there are like, there's another, there are other ways you can do this, but you would have to actually value the diversity, right. You would have to actually care what the content of that civilization is. Um, an example I've often given about this, um, and again, which is, I don't quite say this in the book, but um, if you think about like the way people, I sort of say in the book, but not quite, but like even like the way people learn about Jewish culture at all in like a public, you know, in, in public education. Um, if you think about like, you know, like a social studies textbook in middle school or high school or something like that, like what does it say about Jews in like a world history textbook? There's probably like a page at near the, if it has ancient history in it, there's like maybe a page at the beginning that's like about the Israelites does not mention that those people were Jews. Like they're just old people from a long time ago. Like they might as well be Phoenicians, whatever they're dead. And then like, you know, at the end of the book, if it has modern history in it, there's a chapter about the Holocaust. That's kind of it. Right. And so it's like, you know, but the thing is like, there's two problems with this. Like number one, like, you know, Jews are sort of like fundamental to the history of the West. Like you have like the entire Western civilization is like based on Jewish culture. When you think about Christianity and Islam, like you sort of can't really tell this story accurately without telling this story. And so 
that's like an erasure piece also. So then, so, I mean, so you could say like, oh, it's just like some small group. Like, yeah, there's probably not a chapter about the Yazidis either. Okay. But like the Yazidis did not have this vast influence on these other cultures. If I was writing a history of Syria, maybe I would have a chapter about the, the Yazidis. But if you're writing history about, you know, about the history of the West, like you kind of need to talk about this. The other thing is that like, you know, Judaism is this counterculture that's run through the entire history of the, I mean, I would say the history of the world, but really history of the West. Um, which like really like sort of would call into question a lot of things that um, that we believe about history. And it would kind of like mess up the story in a way that like, as I, as I say, would not make people feel good about themselves. And what I mean by that, and I'm going to give like a very tiny example of this. This is something I, I didn't talk about in the book, but I do talk about it in my podcast. Very tiny example of this um, is like, if you think about like the way you learn about literacy in like your you know history class in high school or middle school, like, you know, what you usually learn is like, you know, there was, you know, until the invention of the printing press, like people really didn't know how to read. It was only like the nobles and the clergy and like these wealthy people had the opportunity to learn how to read, but nobody else knew how to read. And then the printing press technology, hooray, you know, and then you have industrial production, you know, with the industrial revolution, hooray. Now, like there's like technology and access. And now suddenly, hooray, you can have mass literacy, like poor people can also learn how to read. I mean, it's a nice story. But like, if you include Jewish history and world history, it turns out to be a total lie because you had universal male literacy in Jewish communities all over the world for at least a thousand years before the printing press. So like, you know, like poor Jewish kids in rural Libya in the seventh century all knew how to read, right? Poor Jewish kids in 12th century Yemen learned how to read, you know, poor Jewish kids in ninth century Spain learned how to read, poor Jewish kids in 13th century Poland learned how to read. So it's like, the problem is like, if you include that story, it kind of ruins the other story because what it really reveals is actually you don't need advanced technology to have mass literacy. You just need a society that like cares about reading, hmm. right? So I mean, it really would kind of undo a lot of things. And so that's what I mean about curiosity. So like to answer your question from earlier about, you know, what does it mean? You know, like, can you include this story, um, you know, while still having this, you know, story about these atrocities? Like, well, yeah, and it would be a lot more interesting right? It would be a lot more interesting. It would challenge a lot of things that people believe about themselves. Um, you know, I would like kind of like upend a lot of things that we believe. And I think, you know, I mean, it would just certainly, it would also be more true to reality, right? Because most of the people who died in the Holocaust were not kids who were on the soccer team. A lot of them were Hasidim. Well, does that change the way you look at Hasidim now if we're feeling all this like empathy for Hasidim who were murdered in the Holocaust? And I don't see that empathy now. So, you know, that's sort of like, you know, it would really change things. It would really, you know, and it would it it imp would impose a requirement, which I think we should have in this country and that we're fighting for in a lot of ways of like actually respecting the, you know, a pluralist, really having a pluralist, pluralistic society where you respect different, you know, different points of view and different histories and different cultures and different beliefs. Um, as opposed to like this idea of diversity where it's like we have a lot of people who maybe come from different places, but like all think the same way. So somebody who grew up in Israel and has for his entire life struggled with this balance between, you know, an urge for assimilation and embracing some of the aspects of the West that I care about while also recognizing the specific context in which I grew up uh, nationally, politically, culturally. And, and I think it's not uncommon for Israelis to find an appeal in that Christian universalist view, vision of the West. And I think that in your book, at least I felt that in your book, you were expressing a degree of anger and even resentment towards Jews that were flirting with uh, some sort of assimilation who were 
partaking in their own erasure, as it were. Okay, yes. So, yes. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> okay, well, so, but when you, say, like, so this is, like, something, you know, there's a place in the book where I talk about sort of two different forms of anti-Semitism that can be distinguished by, like, the holidays that, like, in the Jewish calendar that celebrate overcoming them, which is Purim and Hanukkah. So, like, yeah. you know, there's sort of, like... I love that observation. Yeah, so, like, Purim is, like, you know, is based on the biblical book of Esther, where there's, you know, this... It's, like, super obvious. There's, like, you know, do... You know, it's, like, you know, bad guy comes and it's, like, let's kill all the Jews. Muhahaha, right? Like, it's nothing subtle about this. Like, you really can't miss this. So, you know, and that's, like, you know, and, you know, that's, like, you know, there are a lot of parallels that in contemporary history, too. I mean, you know, various genocidal regimes, like, you know, fine. Not subtle. Right. So, but then there's like Hanukkah anti-Semitism, which is about, you know, there's this like Hellenized regime that's it's I you know, Hellenistic regime. They're not from Greece, they're actually from Syria, but details, whatever, that takes over ancient Judea. And their goal is still to destroy Jewish culture, but not by necessarily kill all the Jews. Instead, it's like we just like we're not going to kill all the Jews. The goal is still to flush Jewish civilization down the toilet, but we're going to do it this other way, where we're basically going to edit how people are allowed to be Jewish, right? And, or at least dilute it, dilute it. Yes, I, we're going to like we're going to like make rules about like how Jewish you can be. And so what happens? The problem with that, you know, that form of anti-Semitism is like it's like less, you know, it's 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 more insidious because what happens with that form of anti-Semitism is it requires Jews to participate in their own erasure, right? So like it requires Jews to like, in, in a sense, to be in some way agents of this, right? So, um, so one example is like in this Hellenized regime, like they recruited teenage Jewish boys as athletes, right? Because this like, you know, there's this, and I don't pretend to understand, there's this, this whole thing in Hellenistic culture with athleticism and, mm-hmm. you know, these, these arenas, somehow it has something to do with the religion. I don't pretend to understand it, but whatever, they're all like playing sports in the nude. This is like what you see in all these Greek sculptures. So these Jew- teenage Jewish boys had their circumcisions reversed so that they could participate in these games. Because, like, participating in the game wasn't just, like, oh, I'm playing a game. Like, this was, like, it would be, like, you know, the equivalent of, like, having a social media account. It's, like, the only way to matter in this society, right? So, like, these people, you know, you could say they voluntarily did this. But it's, like, how voluntary was it, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and then it sort of becomes this, like, spectrum of voluntary, right? Where, like, there's this, they need to sort of edit themselves, literally, physically, physically in this case, right? They literally have to edit themselves in order to be socially acceptable, Right. And so and you see that like in, you know, there's a lot of like different regimes over time where that happens. And in the book, I talk about the Soviet regime, which is doing that very explicitly, you know, where they're like, well, you know, you you know, it's like, you know, we're you know, I mean, you know, we're not anti-Semitic, but like, you know, here's like 10 things you can't do, which include like, you know, practicing Judaism. Right. So it's like, you know, yeah, we're not anti-Semitic. We just hmm. you know, won't let you practice Judaism. Right. So, I mean, well, I mean, that's the problem. Right. It's like, you know, there's you know, that there's this requirement that like there's this imposition from the outside on how you're able to express or engage in this culture. Right. I mean, and that there's like these parameters placed around it. So, like, I don't you know, I don't like. I don't feel this. Yeah. So, like, when you say like who's participated in that, like, I mean, yeah. Because that that form of anti-Semitism requires that self-erasure. 
so so where I want to push back, obviously, with the, in the case of Hellenism, in, in, it, it's a completely different story. Although the you know, it's it's much more difficult to suss out the details of the of the mindsets of the individual Jews who were participating in this and and, and what was the external pressure. But there there is the version of it where it's more like the American Jew or the Jew in Germany in the nineteenth century that trying to figure out a balance between the community that they belong to and also the repressive elements of that community, the repressive elements that are required in order to preserve the mold of the unique identity, all while being tempted, on the other hand, by the slow development of a liberal society, where they're starting to see new civil and political and, and sexual and professional freedoms and opportunities that were in tension with the old community. And of course, given the prevalent anti-Semitism in Western Europe, a Jew who wanted to join the the new quote unquote open society probably had to renounce his ties to the old community and and shed the traditional accoutrement of Jewishness. At a minimum, they probably had to change their name, as you mentioned in your book. Yes. But my my point is that there are just so many forces involved there, and and I'm you know I'm not, I'm not an expert in the topic, but I I, I, I do base some of my uh, knowledge on, on a friend of mine who who did her PhD in in the the story of converted Jews in Western Europe and the, the, the beginning of a secularization and uh, and assimilation. But at some point, it just becomes so impossibly thorny to to try and, and point exactly what was the epistemological state that drove a Jew to cast away or put behind his home and tradition and try his luck in the new secular Christian modern world. A move which often meant facing ostracism and excommunication from from one's own family. And we can see still some echoes of this debate playing out in our world turned utterly globalized and as and utterly Christian, as Tomer Persico and Tom Holland would say. We we find our, that, that the debate going on between people who are strident assimilationists and people who are hoping to see us returning to a more splintered, culturally siloed world. And I don't know exactly where I fall in this debate, but I, I do remember growing up in Jerusalem being very leery of, of anybody who was too critical of secularization and too defensive of the more inhibitive aspects of Judaism. Yeah. So I don't know if that well, resonates. Look, no, it is. Look, I, I wrote my PhD on this too, <laughs> because my PhD is in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. Um, but my period was in, you know, like, like late 19th, early 20th century Hebrew and Yiddish literature. This is the whole foundation of modern Hebrew and Yiddish literature right. is people who left this traditional life mm-hmm. by choice, right? Trying And basically what happened was though, is like in the, these people left this traditional life and they had nowhere to go. Right. Because these were writers who were living in Eastern Europe at a time where like, the, oh, you know, the the wider society was not an open society. It was not welcoming to them. And so they were sort of like then they, they really didn't have anywhere to go with this. And their art comes from that tension and is developed within that tension. So, I mean, I yeah, I know a whole lot about this, too. Um, what I think is interesting, though, is like so like, you know, like I spent like I spent 20 years of my career dealing with that question. Um, and I spent, I also spent 20 years of my career not writing this book. Hmm. And what I mean by that is this is my sixth book. I have five novels I published before this book. And my novels are all about Jewish history, Jewish culture, um, history, religion, belief. And it's like all like sort of filtered through this sort of contemporary world, but also going back in time. And like, I was doing that, like, partly because like, I was sort of, put, I was also like sort of in the role in the sense of those writers who were, you know, that I had been studying for my doctorate where I was mm. like, you know, I'm writing in English. I'm in, living in a much more open society than any of those writers ever did. Um, but at the same time, like I want to draw on this 
you know, I'm trying to draw on these languages and texts in a way that like, I can't, unlike those writers, I can't assume that my readers know these things. And I'm introducing these things to my entirely, you know, um, you know, very broad audience, which is like, you know, because obviously I have readers from many different backgrounds who are reading my work in English and in many other languages in translation. So, you know, I've, I've made that world accessible to all of my readers. So, I mean, this is something like I was like, really pushing back against any, I, I always wanted this tradition to all the choices that, that people made in this tradition and inside and outside of it and all those things. I always like wanted to like lean hard on that idea that these were all autonomous decisions. Right. And like mm. everything I was doing as a scholar was pointing in that direction. Like I like always like was really like disturbed by this idea that like Jewish tradition was like defined by this like external forces. Right. Like that always like really troubled me. And I always pushed away from it. And then with this book, like I just like hit a wall basically in the last like five years where I'm just like, I mean, I could talk about how I got there. But uh, to, to go to your um, your previous point about sort of in the United States, it really like the wall I've hit in the past five years about this, like kind of made me reconsider a lot of these things because it made me realize. Um, so, for example, like you, the, to go to the example of the United States, you know, I have a chapter in the book about this like mythology of Ellis Island. Right. Like that, which is, you know, this legend that like, oh, there was, you know, we had this fill in the blank Jewish sounding last name. And then there was this like bumbling cl immigration clerk at Ellis Island who wrote down our name in this, you know, other way. And now we have this like much less Jewish sounding last name instead. Ta-da, right? And this is like this mythology, right? It never happened. Nobody in Ellis Island ever wrote down anyone's names. That never happened. Um, hmm. And this is not like me and my secret research. Like this is something they announce on public tours of Ellis Island, right? I mean, this is- Wow, kind of, okay. Like, yeah. Um, but also like, and it's not just that, like we also have court records. From, well, of course they would say that. <laughs> Our clerics were great. <laughs> right, like QAnon, whatever. Like, yeah, they don't want you to know. Yeah, like, no, but like we also, we have court records of, you know, tens of thousands of petitions to New York City Civil Court of, you know, American Jewish immigrants and also their children. A lot of these were their children who changed their names, who like went to court to change their names. Um, and again, this is not this is not my research. This is um, a historian named Kirsten Vermegla who wrote a great book called A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, which is a great title. <laughs> um, and it's about this, great. like she tracks these court filings and like, you know, look, there were other immigrant groups that did this too. But like what she says is like, you walk through these court filings and it's like overwhelming majority are, are Jewish sounding names. She's like, you just, you're in this archive, in the court archives and you're just like, it's like, she's like, it's just pages and pages and pages of spellings. Um, right. And, you know, what's amazing to me and like looking at this was sort of like, that like, you know, and she also like tracks these people and she says, you know, like these were not people who like, like they, they stayed, you know, they, they continued their lives. Like these weren't people, were people, were not people like those writers who left the shtetl and moved to some big city and stuff. These were people like they stayed, like they were still members of synagogues. Like they still like lived in their Jewish, mostly Jewish neighborhoods. Like they were still contributing and participating in Jewish communal life. Like these were not like, you know, self-hating Jews who were fleeing Judaism. What, and so then it's like, why were these people doing this? they were staring down a reality that they could not avoid. So, you know, like today, like, you know, in the United States, we talk about like, oh, anti-Semitic incidents. Like in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, like it wasn't about incidents, right? I mean, this was like about people like couldn't rent an apartment. You know, like you can get a job, right? I mean, this was like really like not like this is a pervasive atmosphere. And, you know, this is like, you know, these people were not like, you know, oh, I want to, this wasn't like this autonomous choice in the sense that these people were like, oh, I, you know, want to be part of a universalist society. These people were like, I want my kid not to get beat up on the way home from school. So like, that's not really like, you know, and I, I sort of like realizing that was like really kind of, and then you realize like that, that legend 
was these people's way of protecting their descendants, mm-hmm. right? Like that was like, they were sheltering their descendants from that psychological damage, right? Which like, mm. you know, look, I kind of, I'm sort of like, thank you. And to be clear, this is, this is, this is different. We, the, the people who changed their names didn't necessarily had to leave their culture. Yes, that's, well, that's my point. Yeah, that's exactly my point is that those are two different things, right? The person who like voluntarily like, you know, is like, I'm sitting in this yeshiva wasting my life. I hate this. I want to like go do something else with my life. That's not the same story as the person who's like, I can't get a job with, with this last name. So you're talking about the wall that you hit. I'm not sure if it connects or not, but uh, there's a line that I marked for myself in the introduction to your book that just made me go, woof. I let me find it. You're reflecting on all the 50 plus countries that you've visited. And you write, the more you travel, and I'm quoting, the more I notice the differences between myself and the inhabitants, and the more alienated, uncomfortable, and anxious I become. This just describes to me the the retreat on a personal level from this ideal of universality that we are all part of the the human family. So I I just was suddenly wondering if that feeling had any role in uh, conceiving the book. Um, no, I feel like that, that, cause that predates the book. Right. So that's like something I talk mm-hmm. about, like, you know, that I sort of, you know, I travel, I grew up traveling a lot, um, with my family of origin and I still do this now. And that's why, you know, like I said, I've been to like 50 or more countries and like, that's just something like that. I was, I, I that I feel like is more to do with like being a writer, honestly, mm-hmm. I feel like being a writer is just sort of like, you know, there's just always like this invisible wall between I mean, I don't know, this is how mm-hmm. I experience I just, like, experienced, this is how I experienced my life. It's like, I just feel like there's an like, invisible wall between me and, like, everyone around me. Mm-hmm. It's very upsetting when I think about it. So this is, but I thought this is something that, um, you know, you try to bridge this wall with language. And right. it doesn't always work. And story. And, and I think yeah. that's, I, I don't know, I think that's probably mm-hmm. true for a lot of, like, creative artists in general, that you sort of feel this, like, kind of deep alienation from, like, everyone around you. Or, um, you know, so, I, yeah, so that particular line, I think, just probably says a lot more about me than it says about <laughs> this, like, larger problems of, you know, anti-Semitism or whatever. But, like, um, so, but, no, the wall I hit in the last few years was sort of, like, you know, has more to do with, like, you know, rising anti-Semitism in the United States in the past five years. And sort of, and not just, like, not even just that, but also just, like, the way I, as a writer, was expected to respond to it. Mm. So, um, you know, and I, I talked to you before about this, you know, this piece I wrote about Anne Frank, I actually wrote that piece because um, I was asked by Smithsonian Magazine to write that piece. Like they approached me like this in 2018, they approached me and were like, you know, we want you to write this essay about Anne Frank for our whatever issue. And I like remember like getting that request and just feeling this deep sense of dread. I'm like, oh, crap, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And so like, you know, the obviously the, the intelligent thing to do would be like, turn this assignment down but like I mean first of all you know maybe I'm not not that thoughtful about what I do and not very logical and what it motivates me but like uh yeah that's part of being a writer also is failing to follow logical things but also I think that um I just something I've noticed always in my work as a writer is that like the uncomfortable moments are where the story is right Mm -hmm. so it's like when you the moment when you start feeling that uncomfortable whether it's alienated or whatever it is like that's where the story is and so I was sort of like, you know, when I was realized like, wow, like I really don't want to write about Anne Frank, I was sort of like, stop myself. I'm like, huh, why don't I want to write about this? What is it about this? And that's when I remembered I had read about this, like that stupid thing with the guy with the yarmulke at the museum. Like that was like a news item I had read, you know, a couple months earlier. And then in going back to find that news item, I found this other thing about the audio guide with the Israeli flag. And I, don't, I was sort of like, just like, wow. And I'm like, you know, and that really made me realize, like, you know, in 
this kind of role that that sort of like, you know, universalizing Holocaust education was playing and also like the role that I was expected as a writer to play in it. Like I hadn't previously written for Smithsonian Magazine. Like they like came and found me, like they approached me and they're like, oh, yay, come write about dead Jews. And like, you know, and not like in a mean way. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. like it was like a very, like it was an editor I had worked with before when she had been at a different publication. I mean, it was like, it was very, you know, it was none of that. That's what was interesting to me is like, it wasn't malevolent intent, right? I mean, it wasn't like, you know, Smithsonian Magazine, it's not like they were trying to like, you know, like they weren't like pulling a Harbin where they were like, you know, trying to profit off this or something. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't that, right? But there was still this like kind of creepiness to it. And then what happened was that piece came out in, one of their fall issues in 2018 and like it was only it, it came out in the, for like and it was like a week later there was the shooting at the tree of life synagogue in pittsburgh and then it was like within hours of that attack the new york times called me and we were like oh do you want to write about this and i was like again it's like feeling a deep dread and then like mm. also you know feeling like wow this is really uncomfortable i really don't want to do this but then in that case feeling like well if i say no then who are they going to ask next right like someone's gonna have to say yes to this in the next 24 hours and sort of feeling like I had some kind of responsibility and then just feeling like wow and then it's like you know six months later then there's like another shooting and it happens again and like as I put it in my book I'm like wow I'm like the go-to person for this emerging literary genre of school shooting op-eds like I didn't apply for this job right and that was sort of what was interesting to me is like I just started noticing that like my editors at mainstream publications like this is what they wanted me to write about Right. And that was sort of why it got interesting to me, because it's like, you know, in this time where you have all these attacks. And then when it really got interesting was when, um, you know, at the at the attacks on the Hasidic community that started happening, like right before the pandemic, they're not calling me about that. And Mm. that I thought was really interesting and telling. Um, So, I mean, you just sort of like hit this wall. What did you take from that, from not being called to write about the Hasidic attacks? That I think is really interesting because I think they're like what I did at that point was um, I looked at all the news stories about there were, I mean, quite a few attacks actually, but like two that were like lethal. Um, You know, I, I looked at all the news coverage of those attacks and I almost couldn't find a news story that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the attack. And that was really striking to me. And it was like, you know, like, um, I'll give an example of this. So with, it's the last legitimate outlet for victim living. Yes. Yes. Like you would, I mean, like, you know, and I, look, I hesitate to say, I mean, I do say in the book, like, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, you would never say this about any other group. Cause I'm sure there's examples of this with other groups, but like, I did go and look at like all the coverage of like the Pulse nightclub shooting from 2015, which was, you know, this shooting at this LGBTQ nightclub, like there's nothing like that about that. And so, I mean, just to, to, to give, to explain what, what I saw in these articles, it was, you know, yeah, the victim blaming. So like in the article about there's this Jersey City shooting, um, it was at a kosher grocery store in Jersey City, which I live in New Jersey, this is very close to where I live. Um, and, you know, this was a Sotmar community. So it's like a, you know, Hasidic community. Um, all of these news articles are like, you know, talk, I could not find a news article that didn't talk about, for example, you know, this, you know, this Hasidic community was gentrifying a minority neighborhood. Mm. Um, and not just using that phrase, but like even more like, you know, oh, they were like, you know, going door to door and offering Brooklyn prices for these people's apartments. And like, you know, as I put it in my book, I was like, you know, I'm a homeowner. I've had people approach me asking me if I wanted to sell my home. Like I said, no, I suppose 
you know, using a gun would also have made these people go away. <laughs> like, you know, it's sort of this crazy, like, you know, gentrifying a minority neighborhood. And I'm just like, well, this is interesting for a few reasons. Number one, like the reason that this these people are moving to Jersey City is because they're fleeing gentrification because they got priced out of Brooklyn. Right. Number one. Number two, like these are highly visible members of like the world's most historically persecuted minority. And number three, like, is there this murderous rage against gentrification that people are like, Mm. you know, walking into blue bottle coffee with automatic weapons and like blowing away white hipsters? I don't think that's been happening. So it's like, I don't think the gentrification is the problem here. Right. And then it's like, you know, the same thing, very similar situation. Like there was a this stabbing attack, a machete attack in Muncie, New York. So this is, um, you know, it's like a small town upstate New York where it's like, you know, the large Hasidic community. And somebody like, this was like right before the pandemic, somebody like walked into like a crowded Hanukkah party with a four foot machete and just started like slashing people. Um, and, you know, like, all like, I don't know, five people were in critical condition, like with like amputated limbs, like one guy died in a few months later, he was in a coma. So, I mean, you know, you read the articles about that attack, like you read them and there's, they say things like, you know, oh, well, there was just for context, you know, there was this big zoning battle between Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents of this town. First of all, the perpetrator was from a town 45 minutes away. So yeah, I don't think he really cared that much about the zoning issues in this town. Second of all, like, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? Because silly me, I left mine at home after before the last school board meeting, right? Like, like what is going on here? Like, and then you just realize like these articles are sending a signal, right? And the signal they're sending is that these people deserve it. Hmm. That was what was really shocking to me. Um, maybe not shocking, but disturbing. Hmm. <laughs> no, unfortunately not shocking. But like, you know, it's like, you know, they're sort of like, but the reason we say is like, this is okay. And that was like, you know, really revelatory to me. And it's like, you know, there's a reason the New York Times is not asking me to write about this. Mm. Yeah, you know, we can all get behind like, you know, people in Pittsburgh were shot at this like liberal synagogue where people have the same hairstyle as you. They're just like you and me. The problem is like, apparently once people are not just like you and me, it's like fine to like hack them with a machete. <laughs> like I find this problematic. <laughs> right. Right. And so when you when you see this, like this, the the rise of anti-Semitic incidents happening and attacks, do you do you draw the the connection to the way we've memorialized in your mind? Is it like the way we're memorializing is part and parcel of the way that we're the, the way that in the American imagination or Western imagination, like the symbols that Jews play and therefore it is somehow excusing or fomenting anti-Semitic attacks? Well, I mean, it's telling you the Jews are only acceptable if they're powerless or dead. Right. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. So, I mean, I mean, like the other thing is like, I want to be you know, really clear about the thing with the attacks on the Hasidic community is mm-hmm. that like, it's, you know, this, it's not like these people are attacking the Hasidic community, you know, people in the Hasidic community because they like disagree with Hasidic practice and belief. Like they're attacking these people because they're visible. The end, like, that's all like, they're not, this is not like an objection to like, you know, gender roles in the Hasidic you know what I mean like there's just it becomes this like huge gaslighting thing that goes on but it's like that's not mm-hmm. why people are being attacked at all right and so so to connect it to your question about you know the memorialization um you know I think that they're they play a similar role in that what those memorials are doing is making people feel like they have a way to feel good about this where they're not responsible so I think that that also is a huge role of like Hasidic, um, Hasidic sorry, of um, Holocaust memorialization in the United States because the Holocaust didn't happen in the United States. 
So like you can go to a Holocaust museum as an American and like feel awesome about yourself because you're like whatever right. crap is going down here is not as bad as this. I mean that's the other thing is like when I say it makes me feel better about yourself. True for Europeans. True for anybody. Like we all look awesome compared to Hitler, right? I mean that makes everybody feel great about themselves. And I mean that's sort of like this sort of self-serving piece of it. And I mean the other problem, and I talk about this in the book, is that like you know yes, like we should all worry about the Holocaust, so we don't repeat it. But like that has come to me. I mean that's like come to mean that like anything short of the Holocaust is like, it's not right. the hot, like it's kind of no big deal. Like, I mean, the bar is a little high, right? I mean, it's like, oh, well, we didn't murder 6 million people, so we're good. I mean, and I think- Wake you know, me up they, when like, they haul out the crematorium. Right, I mean, it's like, there's sort of like this ridiculous, like, you know, you know, in the book, there's one point where I sort of, I'm like, here's a bunch of things that aren't the Holocaust. And it's like, I list everything from like trolling Jews on social media to like forcing Jews out of entire countries and seizing all their assets. Like all these things, they're not the Holocaust. They're no big deal, right? I mean, and that's sort of like, you know, and I think that the, you see this, you know, when you said like tying contemporary anti-Semitism to this, it's not that it's not a causal, it's not that the Holocaust memorialization causes this, that is false, but you see that it's not productive. So like, you know, one of the reasons we have, you know, so many of these museums, I mean, and it is the Jewish community that you know built a lot of these museums in the United States. And the idea behind it was really that that this would be like a way of inoculating the American public against anti-Semitism, right? Because the idea was like people would come to these museums, they'd see like, you know, how where hatred can lead, what the world did to the Jews, and they would then stop hating Jews. I mean, okay, well, like, you know, this has been like we've had like 30 years of these museums. Like, is this working? I mean, I think we can right. re reevaluate this. And the problem is like. You know, now it happens that like, you know, any like public figure who like says something like, you know, vaguely anti-Semitic, like they get dragged to this to the Holocaust Museum and then they like make some bland statement about how this <laughs> is bad. And it's like, well, because, yeah, that that doesn't cost anyone anything. Right. They don't have to like, you know, I mean, like, how hard is it to say Nazis are bad? I mean, unfortunately, apparently hard for some people. But like, I mean, you know, this is like a very low bar. And that, like, you know, you can drag whatever member of Congress who said whatever offensive thing, and then they can go to the Holocaust Museum and be like, yeah, this is sad. It's like, well, okay, yeah, it's sad. But, like, then that person does not have to engage with, like, living Jewish culture at all. They don't have to think about, like, whatever it was that, you know, they don't have to, like, you know, engage with, like, anything of substance, right, that has anything to do with anything happening now. Like, this is, they're absolved. I mean, it's kind of like that, you know, like... And Frank gave us all grace, right? I mean, something like that kind of dynamic happening. So I don't think that it's not one, one doesn't cause the other, right? But like, you do see the limitation. Like if, if the premise was that like Holocaust education was supposed to prevent anti-Semitism, like I do think maybe we should reevaluate that because I'm not, you know, not, I mean, the interesting thing is like, you know, it's like when, you know, like if you're like, but if you're like being trolled on social media and they're like, you know, they're like Photoshopping views into gas chambers, like the problem is not that that person doesn't know about the Holocaust. Right. They definitely know about the Holocaust. Yeah. I always wonder about these things, like when I'm leaving a museum. Like, I, I, I found that they, they try to get you, like, all interactive right before you leave. And they try to make sure that you're somehow, like, I think, I feel like I read about a museum that, like, like has stones. And you, like, you take a stone home with you. And it's supposed to, like, memorialize your commitment to never forget about XYZ thing that you learned about. And I'm, I'm always very skeptical about those I, I don't I'm I'm skeptical to the extent to which a museum can can play that role to really allow you to internalize for the rest of your life and somehow change your your life direction. I mean, may, maybe that's the noble goal. We should be asking museums to do that. But I, I feel like they rarely actually do it. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, 
I mean, if you believe in like the possibility of education, <laughs> right? I mean, you have to believe that people can be changed by teaching them things. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it can happen in two hours in a museum. It's pro- not going to probably happen from only two hours in a museum, but if right. that, you know, is part of a larger thing. Okay. But I want to give an example. I want to, like, I don't think the problem is like museum education. I think it's, yeah. like, I think again, it's like this idea, it's this requirement that like, you know, this erasure of living Jews in the Holocaust memorials that troubles me. So, um, and I haven't, I'm going to give an example of a museum that does the opposite of this. And I have not been to this museum, so I cannot like actually evaluate it. Um, there's a museum in Warsaw that opened about 10 years ago called Pauline, which is like the opposite of this. And what I mean by that is that it is not a museum about the Holocaust. It is a museum of the history of Jews in Poland. And it covers like a thousand years of Polish Jewish history. And so like you go to that museum and it's like, you know, it's like about all these different Hasidic dynasties. It's about like, you know, Jewish po- you know, political parties and like the socialist movement and like, you know, liter- you know and, and literary history and Jewish, you know, Yiddish theater and about like, you know, the Hebrew school network. And like, you know, it's about all these, you know, and also like, you know, the role of Jews in Polish culture as well. And so it's like, it covers all those things. It's not about the destruction of this culture. It's about the content of this culture. I mean, like, and, you know, I mean, apparently it's like popular and people are interested. And like, and when I say people, it's like, you know, these are not, you know, people who are mostly Jews. These are, you know, it's like, you know, there aren't a whole lot of, I mean, not a whole lot of Jews in Poland today. So, I mean, it's mostly non-Jewish Poles who are interested in this. So, I mean, you know, I think that like, you know, I think that that's, I mean, if that's like a better way of doing this, you know, again, I haven't been to that particular museum, so it's not really fair for me to evaluate, but like, I mean, it is possible to do this better. You know, your trouble with the memorialization of the Holocaust is that to a large extent, the world's fascination with it is really a more prurient, pornographic interest in the magnitude of the horror and in Nazi aesthetic. But the fact that the Jews were the primary target was completely incidental. I mean, it wasn't incidental to Hitler or to the actual victims, but it's totally relevant to the gazillion manga comics and films that use the uh, Holocaust or, or the, the Nazi regime as the setting for the story and the, 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 the Nazi uniform, the SS uniform as the coding for villainy. That's why films like Star Wars can contain Nazi aesthetic and, and Nazi allegories and even hints of a genocide, but less likely to to have any reference to what really happened and to whom so i want to ask you about uh, i'm going to i'm going to segue and ask you about possibly my favorite chapter which is uh narratives of black, fictional, uh, fictional, dead fictional fictional dead jews so i love this because this ties into your origin story as an uh, author and uh, uh literature scholar so if you don't mind give us the 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 backstory and then i have a question okay sure um, yeah, so my comment there is that this comes from my graduate work in, um, so I have a doctorate in, in comparative literature, and my languages within that were Yiddish and Hebrew. So, I mean, and I, I maybe had to pass some exams in other, because I think you needed four or five languages. So I did some other things, but I really was focusing on Yiddish and Hebrew. Um, but my training was in comparative literature. And when you do that, like, you have to take all these, like, courses in, like, a history of literary theory and criticism. And I was sort of, like, interested and and also I was writing novels at the same time and I just like I opened that chapter with this like message I got from one of my readers who like wrote me this like really like kind of crazy email where she was like you know I was reading one of your books and this was a book I wrote that happened to be about a a pogrom survivor and she's like 
And I got to this scene where the horse is being beaten and I threw the book across the room because, you know, I think that, you know, it's really more important for us to like, you know, write stories that make people laugh and enjoy and feel uplifted, you know. Thanks, Denise. And I'm like, you know, I wrote, I wrote a reply to Denise, which I was intelligent enough not to send, where I'm like, dear Denise, you know, sorry about the horse. It was a scene from, it was based on a scene from Crime and Punishment, which is another book that you probably want to avoid. <laughs> right? I'm like, you also want to steer clear of the Hebrew Bible, not a great book for people who want to laugh and enjoy and be uplifted. And, but like, in reading, like, I, I've been thinking very carefully about this idea as a novelist of like what readers want out of a story because my readers tell me. Hmm. Right. Like my, I'm like hearing from readers. I, you know, that's an extreme example. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't have been able to publish five novels if most of my readers didn't like what I was doing. But like, um, you know, I, you know, I, I'm in, I am like in dialogue with like real readers who are like, are, and who are like commenting on my work. And in this literary theory courses, I came across this, um, one of the people we read was this mid 20th century. Um, he's actually British literary critic. I think I mistakenly call him American in the book called Frank Kermode. And he has a book called The Sense of an Ending. And he, this is this like theory where he basically says that our, ex, our ex, expectations of literature actually come from religion. And what he means by that is that we want to live in a coherent world. And so in the same way that like, you know, fundamentalist believers of whatever religion, like you sort of like see everything as like a sign from God, like everything happens for a reason. He's like, well, in a book, everything really does happen for a reason. And everything really is a sign because like, the writer made it that way. Like, you know, like when you're writing a novel, like I'm not like, there's no random details in a novel. Like everything there is placed there by the artist for a particular purpose. And for him, he says like, this purpose is to drive us toward this redemptive ending, right? And so he basically says like, you know, the whole idea is that they're, they're out, you're building out this narrative arc and that that's what Western religion does. And he gives this example where he says like, oh, the Bible is a very good example of this narrative arc. It begins at the beginning with the words in the beginning and it ends at the, with a vision of the end with the words, you know, even so come Lord Jesus. And I'm like, well, first of all, yeah, that's not how I thought the Bible ended. But second of all, I started thinking about this and I was like, is there this, you know, the, you know, the Hebrew Bible like doesn't like end with a like, ta-da, like it really kind of doesn't like, you know, and especially like, like, in, like the Torah doesn't like, you know, they, at the end of the Torah, like they don't even make it into the promised land right like it's like a cliffhanger right i mean there's sort of this like idea. and chronicle just peters out yeah right i mean sort of well i mean you know it continues is the idea so like, there's always like a sequel and you know i started thinking about this and you know i started really thinking about like what i was you know the expectations that i i felt imposed on me as a novelist which were like think about what we ex and i realized that like you know this this idea of this narrative arc is actually christian right it's not like from religion in general it's from christianity because like you know, and if you think about what we expect as English language readers from a story, like you expect the good guys to be saved, right? If that doesn't happen, you know, expect there to be like, you know, the main character should have an epiphany, you know, or there should be like a moment of grace. Like, you know, these are all very Christian terms. And, you know, what I started realizing is, you know, I was in the meantime, I was studying Hebrew and Yiddish literature and like none of the writers I was reading, like they never gave you any of those things. You know, like in Yiddish literature, it's like nobody's ever saved. You know, like there's nobody ever like has an epiphany or a moment of grace. Like nobody realizes anything. Nobody, like, I don't know. Like it was sort of like just a, a different, like I just was like, these things are not happening. Like in like, you know, in the Hebrew and Yiddish literature that I was reading in these Jewish languages, like instead there was like this different kind of expectation of like where a story was going, which was more based on like the idea of resilience rather than the idea of redemption. And I sort of saw that 
repeatedly in a lot of the works I was reading. I mean, is it going to be true for every single book? No, nothing's true for every single book. But like, it was just a very clear pattern in what I was reading. And I sort of was like, you know, there's this idea of this narrative arc that you're supposed to, that's supposed to land you in this uplifting place, like my reader Denise said, you know, where it's like, you know, well, you know, a book is supposed to uplift you and make you feel, you know, again, it's like, make you feel good about yourself. And I'm like, I don't think that's what literature is for. And it made me like, I was thinking about this, like really, you know, less as a student than as a practitioner, like as a novel, as a writer of novels and thinking like, you know, what do my readers expect of me, you know, in providing this kind of arc and this ending. And I was just like looking through like, you know, literature and Jewish languages, it just like doesn't give you that. And like, that was sort of like really striking to me. Um, so I, that's, that was a lot of detail. So I don't know if that's a... Yeah, no, I know. I was just so excited reading this chapter and I had to bring it up because that's really interesting. As, I, as I was reading it, it, it clicked to me because it's something that I never really put together, but it's so obvious when you grow up on Yiddish and Hebrew literature. I was immediately thinking on one of my favorite authors, Shai Agnon. Yes. His stories just, just end. Yes. Just, you read them and they, and they just end and they go nowhere in that traditional sense. Yes. It's 500 pages of things just happening and then it ends. Yes, exactly. And, and leaves you in a weird state. And I think that's why it was so important for me to bring this up in, in this podcast because it's the really the heart of what we, we do here. And it's this feeling of, of, of uncertainty, of, yes. of unmoredness, of absurdity. Exactly. And, and you just, as a reader, need to endure... Hmm through it with maybe even some a degree of apathy well, it's not apathy no it's not apathy it's it's the it's the, the point of what it's like well there's a couple of things like one is like that you know there's they're calling out the lie of this other art in that like they're saying that, like yes. you can't be yes. true to the human experience while pretending to make sense of the world right 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 so like that's calling out the limit it's like the art in, in jewish literature is like it's almost it's about the limitations of art Right. Hmm. So that's part of it. But then also right, exactly. that's like very deeply embedded in Jewish texts, like ancient Jewish texts. Right. I mean, it's like when you study the Talmud, like they're just like having all these arguments and like the arguments aren't resolved. Like they don't like sort of say like, and ta-da, the winner is so-and-so. And especially like, you know, even well, if sometimes God's voice does come down and resolve the but, argument. But even when God's voice comes down, they don't accept it. Right. There's this story <laughs> of the, they, no, they don't. There's a, this is a great story of the oven of Achnai. I don't know if I want to bore your listeners. Right, 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 of course. Like, yeah, I mean, there's literally a story in the Talmud. It's like probably the most famous story in the Talmud where it's like, you know, these two dudes are like having a fight about something. And, you know, one guy's like, well, you know, if I'm right, then let this carob tree outside, you know, walk 30 cubits. And the tree gets up and walks 30 cubits. And the other guy's like, how is that a good argument? Huh? Right? <laughs> <laughs> It gets worse. Like, then it, it escalates because it's a story. You know, wow. it's, it's like the aqueduct runs backwards and then the aqueduct runs backwards. He's like, since when do we get proof from an aqueduct about your own? And then finally, like, the voice of God comes down and it's like, he's right. And then, like, the guy yells back at him and he says, um, you know, these words that we said, it's a word, it's a line from the Torah where it says, it's not in heaven, meaning, like, God gave the Torah to people. God can't then, like, come down and revise the Torah because that would imply that. God didn't get the Torah right the first time, like was like God a crappy writer and like has to come back and like edit. Like, no, the idea is like God gave the Torah to the people and now it's like it's up to us to like figure this out. Like you can't like intervene and be like, oh, that's not what I meant. Right. Like, cause then that would undermine the whole idea of like this human partnership. So, like, I mean, it is like a very deep idea. So it is like, you know, it's not even like that God comes down and like tells you the answer. Like, even that doesn't work. So I mean, I think that's sort of interesting, but like I think when it's sort of, you know. It, it's it's giving you a sort of a different kind of, you know, it's leading you as a reader to a different place where you're expected to like 
live with ambiguity, right? And like to like sort of like find a way to thrive within tensions, thrive within ambiguity and thrive within pluralism, right? Like when I say pluralism, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, in the way we think of it in America, like with people of different ethnic backgrounds or something, but like thrive within like a plurality of, of points of view. Right. And, and understanding or in explanations and theories of the world. Yes. Right. That there's like a lot of competing theories and like none of them are winning. And, and sometimes they're utterly irreconcilable. Yes. You know, reading it made me think of A Serious Man, which is probably the Coen Brothers' it's best movie. <laughs> and it's possibly the most Jewish film in that sense. It just leaves you hanging there in, in total inexplicability and uncertainty both in the inscrutable yiddish opening and in the in the ending well but it's the book of job right that's from the the biblical book of job because at the end when the tornado comes that's the the voice from the the sarah that's the voice from the whirlwind right but it doesn't resolve anything right exactly there. and the voice from the whirlwind and job doesn't resolve anything either like job is like why is this happening to me and god's answer is like i made giraffes <laughs> that's actually god's answer it's like dude i made giraffes can you balance the sky you can't do that and i made giraffes and like you know no but job gets a denouma not real well and he does but it's like so but it's so absurd that like you're not really okay gets like yeah here compensatory kids and it's and so wives. ridiculous that like you can't take it seriously it's like and then he got, like, right. he got all new children but at that, like, no adult reader is going to read that and not think that's meant to be. I mean, I think it's almost meant to be funny, right? It's like, and then everything got was all better because, like, he got all new kids, and then things were great. Uh, yeah, it's like the the addendum for um for Ecclesiastes. It's like, ah, uh, okay, so yes. so we're good now. Right. So my last question is: Did you read Chagnon's um the the mistress and the merchant? Because I think it almost ties in all everything we talked one. about. I don't know this one, although I've, I've so, read so I'll just tell you about it briefly. I might even read it, but yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite shorts. My favorite, probably my favorite short is Fahrenheit, by the way. But but this is like like a three page story, and it tells about a merchant who's like just traveling, selling his wares, and he meets this beautiful widow who's the the, the mistress of of the Grand Manor, and and he, she takes him in, and she feeds him and dresses him up and takes care of him, and he basically starts living there. It's described that he takes off his merchant tatters and dons the garments of freedom. And he gets a taste of what it's like to be a free man. He's assimilated. He no longer needs to wander the world aimlessly. He has, he has a place. He has a home. And then one night she comes into his room and tries to eat him alive. <laughs> Just straight up, she she reveals her fangs and then launches at him and tries to devour him. They fight. Somehow he manages to escape with everything intact. And then he just moves on with his life and goes back to being a merchant. Like nothing has happened. Nothing changed. There's no personal growth. No, right. He doesn't even have the the, the lesson of uh, next time I'm not going to go into uh, a mistress that uh, allures me with assimilation. Oh, maybe maybe the next one will be nicer. Maybe. He's just, yeah, that was that. <laughs> and back he goes. It's like there's no indication that he learned anything or changed anything. No, somebody just tried to eat me. I guess. That is excellent. Back to being a merchant. Uh, so I, I just feel like this, in some, some literary sense, connects all the threads that we've been talking about. Oh, yeah, I, 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 have, I don't know that particular story, but I do. I love Agnon. He is. He, he, yeah, yeah, he's something else. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for this fantastic book. Oh, thank it's you. It's great to have something so provocative that it, you can't put it down. 
and you're like, I feel like I have to take the cover off when I read it in public. I love that. Are you kidding me? I'm going to put this jacket on other books yeah. uh, okay. just to see how many eyes I can turn. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like for, for like what the guy was joking about. So by, by podcast, it's called Adventures with Dead Jews. And it's, it's totally mm-hmm. different stories, but it's the same premise. It's like the same sort of concept. But unfortunately, as I put it in the podcast, like the world's love of dead Jews is far too vast for one book to contain. So mm. well, we already have one <laughs> podcast. That, and um, one of the things like the producers and I are constantly joking about it. So I'm like, it's time to make merch. Mm. right like what we really need is like you know adventures with dead juice beach towel right like no one's taking your seat at the pool with that right <laughs> oh bag. my god travel if i were mug bag travel oh, mug yeah people love dead yep. hot, hot tote bags yes <laughs> no one's taking oh my god. I, that on the seat like no one's taking it as an israeli my capacity for dark holocaust humor is infinite so i would i would say like for like all jews that is infinite yeah the Dar, thank you so much. Yes, thank you again. Right, thank you. This is it. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media. And if you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that helps a lot. Share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane.